I've entitled my message today, Life in Context with the Big Picture. And at the moment in this world, um, the big picture's not looking too good. The, the world's machine, the economy, is, is coughing and spluttering a bit. And there's a lot of nervousness. Even in our own culture, Wall Street aside, there's a lot of people have lost a lot of money in New Zealand this year. And there's a bit of an underlying sense in our culture of, where's all this going to go? It's created uncertainty. Because the whole thing with economic modelling is that we can only try and anticipate the future based on what has happened in the past. But the past doesn't always give us a picture of where things are going to go to. And so the world is sort of sitting there in an anticipation. What impact is this going to have for me? Because we can't see the next stage. And in reality, when we look at this story today, this mountaintop experience which Justin read from Mark chapter 9, it's quite a dramatic occasion in the life of Christ. But to get the full sense of it, we really just need to rewind a little. Because a few days previous... Jesus is with his disciples. And he's saying to them, hey guys, what, what's the gossip about me? What are people saying about me, about who I am? And he gets the feedback, you know, or some are saying you're Elijah. Because they knew the Old Testament story said Elijah would come again. Some are saying Moses. Old Testament story said when it all happens, the super prophet will ultimately come, and Moses said that. And he says, well, who do you say? And Christ... Uh, Peter says, you are the Christ, in other words, the Messiah. You're the one we've been looking for. So it's all going well at that point. And then Jesus says, well, guys, I'm going to actually have to suffer. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter thought, aha, uh -huh, you got it all wrong. This is not the story. This is not the big picture I have of how things will unfold. And he, he pulls Jesus aside and says, come on, you've got it wrong. And Jesus' response is, look, get behind me, Satan. Peter was trying to impose his picture of how he saw reality on Christ. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then we read, Jesus takes Peter, James and John up on this mountain. The kingdom, power, these were words in their vocab, words in their story. And Jesus is going to take them to give them a glimpse and so in the first two verses there in Mark chapter 9, we see that they go up with Jesus on this mountain and Jesus is transfigured all before them. Now you can also think of these disciples' mountaintop experiences. What would be going on in their mind? From the Old Testament, they'd know the story of Moses. Moses was taken up on a mountain and new revelation was given to them. Here's Jesus, he's leading them up on the mountain. What must have been going on in their mind? They'll be trying to connect the dots with the past. And there before them, Jesus is changed. 
We're told that his, he was so white that it was whiter than any earthly launderer could make his clothes. His whiteness was beyond this world. He wasn't changed in who he was. It's just that in a sense the veil had been pulled back for a moment. And he shone in all his glory before them. And of course, the shining glory of Jesus, Moses, what happened when he went up on the mountain? When he came down, he had to veil his face before the people because the, sh the glory of God shone from his face. So there's all this imagery and stuff going on in the disciples' mind as they are there with Jesus, seeing him transfigured from without. And then in verse 4, we see Elijah and Moses appear on the scene. And of course, Moses, he was the one through whom the covenant and the law had come. Moses was the one who spoke of the super prophet that one day would come. Elijah, he was there. He was the, symbolized the prophets, all the prophets of the old order. So here we've got the law represented, we've got the prophets represented there. And they are talking with Jesus. And in this talking with Jesus in Luke chapter 9, of this account of the same story, we read where Jesus tells Moses and Elijah of his coming death. In a sense he's saying, hey guys, all that you looked forward to, all that you were expectant of is now finally here and I'm going to die and be resurrected and the new kingdom is finally going to come. But amidst that whole context, we see that Peter becomes quite terrified. In verses 5 and 6, he gets so terrified and confused about what's going on, he builds three shelters. In other words, like any bloke gets under a bit of pressure, he goes and does something. And so one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Well, that all seems quite logical. But the reason he was doing this, his story, his understanding of the big picture was, this is the kingdom now. It has finally come. Great, what we heard a few days ago about all this, Jesus dying and us having to deny ourselves, take up the cross, all that kind of stuff. Great, it's gone. It obviously was a bad dream. It's just, it's here. Let's dwell in it. And out of that context, this t him being terrified, a cloud comes down on the mountain. And this cloud envelops them. Once again, we can see here symbolism going back into the Old Testament story. Mount Sinai, cloud comes down on the mountain. God calls Moses up onto the mountain, out of the cloud. And so clouds in the biblical literature, in the biblical story, either they often reveal God or they conceal God. And you've just got to have some sympathy for these guys up here on the mountain with Jesus. And this cloud comes down. And out of this cloud, this booming voice says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. It's got an exclamation mark after it. In other words, all that has gone before, Moses, the prophets, 
they are not relevant, listen to Jesus. Here you sense this, the, the love of the Father. He's so proud of his son. This is the one to now listen to. I know sometimes as a parent, with your own children, as they mature, they become knowledgeable about things. If people come, come around to our place at present and talking about health and diet and that, well, I just say, listen to Kylie, hear her. She's a dietitian. Or if it's anything to do with tidiness and order and neatness, I say, hear Heather, she is a melancholic. <laughs> Look, melancholics know everything. <laughs> they can always help you finish off. She's never washed the car, but she can always give me good feedback. <laughs> and so we move on. So they kept his word to themselves, and as they were coming down, it says they were questioning what the rising of Jesus from the dead meant. Even though what they'd heard prior to going up the mountain, even though what they had seen on the mountain, what an authenticating experience of who Jesus is, been told to listen to him, they were still questioning the whole thing of resurrection. They still hadn't got it. Because the story, the big picture they had in their mind was so embossed, they couldn't actually let it go. Because in their reality, in Jewish reality, resurrection was something that would come at the end when the Messiah had come and all would be resurrected. But here he's talking about his resurrection. They couldn't put it into their picture. Verse 11, and they asked him saying, what do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered them and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. They knew how Malachi had said that one would come, Elijah would come and prepare the way of the Lord. A voice crying in the wilderness. Elsewhere in Malachi, right at the very end of Malachi, it talks about him coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they were looking for this Elijah figure. And here Jesus has said, he has come. Tick the box. That part in the big picture and the big story which you've been waiting for, that has happened. He has restored all things. And we read on. Then he answered them and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Once again, Jesus is telling about his, his coming suffering. But he, he puts it across a backdrop with, a, with Elijah slash John the Baptist. Because he says in verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. In essence, you know, Elijah came. You didn't expect him to get a hard time slash John the Baptist. Think of John the Baptist. He lost his head. And likewise, you don't expect me to suffer, but it's going to happen. That's just the nature of the story. And I wonder where you and I all sit in relation to this mountain experience today. I think often as Christians, we can be like the disciples pre the Mount of Transfiguration. 
where we're trying to live out this Christian faith, deny ourselves, sacrifice, not to pursue the world. And we keep thinking, oh man, it's so hard, it's so hard, it's so hard. Why? Why should I get up early and come to a prayer meeting? Why should I go out and help the poor and the lonely? Why should I go and feel compelled to do mission work or what have you? Because in a sense, prior to this transfiguration experience, why? They had just been with Jesus for several months, going through towns, casting out demons, healing the sick, seeing Jesus, have wonderful debates with the authorities. All this wonderful stuff happens, and he tells them, guys, there's rough stuff ahead. And I think so many people, in a sense, start the Christian journey, start to embrace the rough stuff, and walk away. Because they haven't had that mountaintop experience. And when I say experience, I'm not talking about some wildly emotional, Pentecostal, way out there experience. Because when you think of Peter, James, and John up there, on that mountain... What they saw, what they heard, they saw Jesus transfigured, they saw the past, they were told of the future, and it was trying to get a grasp of the big picture. That's what the transfiguration experience really was for them, was grasping that there cannot be glory without suffering. I think so often we can sort of, in a in a um, cliched way, when we talk about the glory of God, seeing the glory of God, I think it's some mystical experience. But I propose to you, out of this transfiguration scene, we see the big picture, the glory of God's work. And that now Jesus has revealed himself. And so once we come down off the mountain, we are called to live differently. We're called to let go what was preceding the mountain view. And so sometimes in our Christian life, we get momentary glimpses of the glory. I call them aha moments. There's something just within your spirit. You think, yes, this is it. It could be as we're worshipping corporately. It could be just out on a, a walk where we're just talking with the Lord. Or it could be in a context or when someone does something for us. But that aha sense of the reality, of, I've got a sense of what the big story is about. This is what it's all about. Sometimes at a funeral, I find funerals very, um, well, I'll say motivating. Because they confront me with the reality that one day I'm going to be in a box myself. And sometimes I think, mate, what are they going to say at my funeral? Because in essence, what is said at my funeral will reflect how my life lived, was lived in context of the big story, of the big picture of God's work with humanity. The wonderful thing is with the scriptures, we've got the record of these men post the resurrection. And we know through the book of Acts, we know through church history that they all lost their lives 
for the big picture. They all learnt what it was like to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Finally, they got hold of the big picture after the resurrection. And mate, were they focused. Nothing else mattered. They finally got there. And we don't see them walking away from the faith. They persevered right to the end. We're faithful to the message of the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think the Apostle Paul, even though he wasn't one of the disciples... He's like us. He was saved into that wonderful glory after the resurrection. And in Romans chapter 8, he gives us a a sense of the struggle for us as Christians in living out that big story. He says in chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy in comparison with the glory which will be revealed to us. Paul knew what it was like to be suffered. He received 39 lashes five times. He had been beaten with rods. He had been threatened with death many times. All because he lived for Christ. And he goes on in the same passage and he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. People, in living our lives in context of the big picture, in the context of the glory of Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration, we are saved in the hope that our bodies will be restored, that we will be set free from this reality. That is our hope. That is what we are living for, ultimately. So when we are unwell, when we've lost heaps of money through investment banks, when just stuff happens illogically and as if the world's against us, I can't get anything right. Our angst, our worry, in a sense, we need to turn to groanings for the future reality. And that, in a sense, speaking to ourselves and saying, this is short term. This is no big deal, really, in the scheme of things. Because Paul, once again, he really shows in his life how he had a grasp of the big picture. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, for I am, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had such an understanding of the glory of God, he just saw death as gain, but he also saw life with such a missional zeal. Because he goes on to say in chapter 1 of Philippians, he says, but if I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I'm hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul was so connected with the glory of his salvation. He knew he's been saved to be glorified one day. And he had missional purpose in the meantime. And I think he really... um, The book of Philippians really helps um, one contextualize what this means... 
when Paul talks in um, chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to him making that statement a bit to these Christians that our citizenship is in heaven, he talks about Christians who have walked away. And he talks about their changed goals. Let's have a, just have a listen to this. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. This is their big picture. Whose God is their belly. In other words... They're just about gratifying themselves and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Then he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. People, as people that have been saved into God's wondrous glory, our citizenship has changed. We now view this earth from a different reality. We've got a new passport. Out of this new passport becomes, comes new values. We view the reality differently. And this is what we need to take hold of in our Christian lives. This week in the paper, I don't know whether you saw the article, but there was a, an article about Christians in India been attacked. Hundreds of churches burnt over the last 12 months. Christians killed. Christians burnt. It's sort of, it's, I just find it hard to connect with. But I ask the question, why on earth would these people be hanging in with the Christian faith? They are a minority, only 2.5% of the population are Christian. They're the oddballs of their society. Their world doesn't want them. But why would they stay loyal? I would suggest it's because through the work of the Spirit in their life, they've got a sense of the big picture. That one day they're going to be in glorious relationship with their Father and the suffering will be over. But in the meantime, it is honouring to actually stand with their Saviour, Jesus, in this world today. I find that kind of news in the newspaper disturbing and confusing. Because we live in a context where we're under no threat at all. But we are threatened. Because what Paul talks about here in Philippians is that the earthly desires easily can pull us in. The earthly citizenship can easily pull us in. But when as Christian community we've got a full understanding of the glory of Jesus in the context of the big picture, things change. Because even the body of Christ changes. And what's exciting, in the context of our own church this, this year, the elders, and Reuben have been working on developing a missions focus for our church. And have identified a context in Indonesia. And on the screen there, you will see a picture of 1,500 people worshipping in a Muslim city. Where 80% of the people are Muslim. All those people there are Christians. 
They have bomb threats, but they come to worship every fortnight. And where do they come from? You'll see on the next slide, you'll see a picture of a graveyard, of a cemetery. In the cemetery, there are 25 Christians. Because what's happened is this. Christian people in that community have been taking the love of Jesus through practical things of food and shelter to these people. And these Muslim people have become confused and asked, why are you doing this? Because in their story, in their big picture, there's no expression of love and self-sacrifice for the betterment of other people. And as a consequence, these Christians are given the opportunity to talk about the glory of Jesus. And the community around them is letting this Christian ministry happen because of the good work it is doing. Because the way it's helping so many people, and if they were to put them under pressure, there would be revolt. There'd be anger. There'd be people lost and hurt and die. And so, in a sense, the opportunity for us as a church to go over and get to amongst these people and help further this ministry here in Indonesia is really an opportunity of us living out the big story by being missional, getting out of our comfort zone and going to a context where there are people suffering who not only need Jesus, but they need food first. And out of, as Rod Tonsman said last week, how the, the, the Christian kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom. We go in with a different agenda. We go in to serve people. We do what you would call random acts of kindness. It's just, to the world's view, it makes no sense. And so, in the context of all of this, we are called as Christians to reflect on our understanding of the big story. Because for these disciples, even though they had to keep the message a secret till after the resurrection, we now live post-resurrection. We've got a much greater sense of the big picture than what they have. And I suppose as we um, reflect on our lives and the glory of Jesus and what he has revealed to us of the past, of the present, and of the future, the question is for you and I is, what is in my big picture of life? What am I living out in my big picture? Yes, I may be a Christian, but have I really got an understanding and live out my life with a Christian view of reality, of God's top-down perspective, the helicopter perspective? And perhaps our lives are like paintings. And of course, like any person's life, our life is unfinished. But I wonder what you have in mind as the final scene. What do you want on that final scene as your life culminates? Yes, people, we need to be mindful of this world's reality and the reality of the glory of Jesus. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You see, there's really going to be no difference for you and for me in living out our lives on this earth. We're both going to have pain and suffering. But the difference for the Christian is as we have to deal with the stuff that goes wrong, the hurt and the pain, we can actually live through it with hope. We can live through it knowing that someone has revealed the reality of this world to us and we no need to get despondent because as we groan, we pray in anticipation of glory. 